<clears throat> well, this is hindsight of episode four, which was listen to the music. Um, thank you, everyone, for the great response on that one. Several people have actually told me that it was uh, their favorite episode so far. So uh, that's great. I think because the topic was so relevant to something we're all dealing with and we all face and deal with. Um, so, and uh, yeah, so now get ready for 20 minutes of me gushing about Mel Gibson. I'm just kidding. Um, okay, so I wanted to, I think like the episode was super, super fun and interesting. Obviously, thank you also to Danielle Lee Thompson, who's great, who's our third at the table, and then Nina Strominger, uh, who was our featured guest. It's really fun having three at the table. I think we'll probably do a little more of that in the future as well. Um, but I think it was so fun for everyone because that dilemma, if it is one anyway, or, or situation we all deal with is so, um, like more psychological than, or it seems psychological more than philosophical where it seems like just preference. And so on that, it, there was one thing in particular in the episode that I really didn't get to bring out in full that I, I actually, well, two things that I want to talk about. Um, but it was something that I was sort of trying to push a little bit. Uh, based on Nina Strominger's work and this notion of the true self and this this phrase that she used in our interview of, of an act of self-creation, sort of like the art you consume as an act of self-creation, was what came out of um, sort of her interview there that I really liked and tried to latch on to. I don't think I fully fleshed it out, and I wanted to take this opportunity to really dive a little deep in, deeper into her work, which is really incredible in the psychological field on that topic of sort of what is the true self and this um, argument that she has and she makes in a really cool um, paper and um, almost a dilemma that she poses to people in the research to make a case that the moral self is the true self or the self that people really latch on to and care about. So I want to talk about that. So there's two things in particular that um, I think are are will be good to sort of take on uh, on board here before to that will make sense in the end one is the notion of uh, well it's it's actually coleman's favorite uh, fallacy to know and I, when i say favorite it's like the one that he recognizes that comes up the most often and i think i agree with him and it's sort of an informal fallacy. It's called the continuum fallacy. Uh, it's also known as the beard fallacy. By the way, if you're watching it on YouTube, I have uh, I haven't trimmed in a while, so I have a. <laughs> I don't know if I would call this a beard. Actually, that's what the fallacy is. Um, or it's also called the heap fallacy. So I'll, I'll tell you about what that means. And then Nina Strominger's work in in this true and moral self. And then I want to combine sort of those two ideas to get to this nugget of self creation. Um, so the continuum fallacy is is basically, in fact, it, it comes up a lot in the uh, in the show. In fact, I know Coleman mentions it mentions it in a few uh, upcoming episodes. But it seems to be this common fallacy where um, there's a sort of a, a continuum between something in state A and then something in state B, and and if you can't find an exact point along the continuum where it turns from A to B or vice versa, well then A and B don't exist. So like with the heap. Um, fallacy the 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 main question is what is a heap of sand and versus a pile of sand versus one grain of sand like if one grain of sand is not a heap and two is not a heap and three is not a heap at what point will i add a grain of sand where you say like well now it's a heap of sand uh clearly there's no like if you zoom in and do that kind of analysis of a heap of sand um 
you you won't find the exact number of grains of sand or whatever or some scientific cutoff point where now it's a heap and before it wasn't a heap of sand um so then the temptation that some people seem to make which is the fallacy is to say well then heaps don't exist right and it's like well the concept of a heap versus a not heap of sand uh, still exists even if we can't find the exact moment that it switches from non-heap to heap um the same analogy works the same way with a beard of like what with what i'm growing right now again if you're watching youtube if you would call this a beard or not is seemingly like if it's missing one hair if i grow one more or like let it go one more day is it now a beard versus it wasn't before or, or if i sh shave and have stubble is that now zero beard the the note the fact that you can't find the exact moment of when i have a beard or not doesn't mean the concept of beards is meaningless or doesn't exist. Um, this is a fallacy. If, if you if you notice that that comes up all the time, and also becomes very very um, um, attractive and sneaky to sort of sneak into your brain. I catch myself making it sometimes when you sort of just in the moral conversations when you just want to kind of sidestep a moral conversation and pretend the concept doesn't exist as sort of. Uh, it, by, by playing this trick, but it's a trick and it's a fallacy and we should notice it's a fallacy. Um, but I bring this up in the moral sphere because um, we have to draw the line somewhere, right? Something's a heap. Now, maybe not a lot hangs on what you think a heap of sand is versus not, but in the moral sphere, and this is, you'll probably get the hunch of where I'm going with Nina's work, in the moral sphere of where you draw those lines of when it is a heap versus not a heap, and I'll, I'll come up with some examples, um, that those are really, really important. Where you draw those lines, we draw those lines all the time. Actually, an example that uh, maybe it's a bit of a lewd one, but that Coleman uh, often uses with me is um, something like the age of consent for sexual relations. Well, we, you know, if you say we've drawn the line, let's say legally, generally in America at 18, but this doesn't mean if you zoom in, because the concept of consenting sexual relations of adults is a, is a concept on sort of one end of, of this continuum. And on the other end of the continuum is children who cannot consent. And we, we recognize those as a, a valid and obviously very important distinction. So where is that? So when, when, is, when is a child a child and an adult adult in this conversation, which has a, a huge moral consequence to it? And so we draw it at 18 as a society, and that's, you know, we've decided on it. Is it a good line? Is it not a line? We can argue that all the time, and, and, and we do in legal cases. But that doesn't, so let's say you, you draw it at 18. That doesn't mean that, you know, <laughs> A, a child, a boy or a girl who is 17 years old and 364 days, um, you know, nothing magical happens at midnight that night where they suddenly become an adult now who is like capable of, of making uh, consenting decisions. Legally, the answer is yes, but morally, you could see when you zoom in there, it becomes it becomes fuzzy. It becomes that heap and which piece of sand that you, you put in there. But of course, you should not say, well, because I can't find the exact second where that happens in a human life well then we should just throw the entire thing out obviously that is ridiculous and immoral because the concept generally of a child cannot consent and an adult can are really important moral concepts to um 
uphold and very real concepts to uphold. So where we draw those lines or where you draw that line, that, that, that example, you know, is sort of a societal one, but where you draw those lines in your personal life, um, th that is a way to conceive of what I'm going to get to now of what I think. And maybe this is a little, maybe a stretch of her work, but I don't think so of Nina Strominger's work of trying to pin down this notion of the moral self as the true self. Um, so with the, you know, dilemma we're talking about at hand, it's, it's, you know, maybe it's a bit flimsy, but the question of, even when I posed it to her of, you know, um, is there something that an artist, a musician or can do that is so heinous that you should stop listening to it and you would stop listening to it. And she says like, you know, well, of course, at some point that answer is yes. You know, if someone's like some mass murderer and that's what their songs are all about and promoting or something, you know, it seems pretty absurd to be like, well, I love the tune of that little jingle, so I'm going to keep listening. Um, you know, at some point that you you recognize in that heap fallacy analogy I'm making, like this is now a heap of sand <laughs> versus a non-heap of sand. But what was interesting about the dilemma was trying to come up with a lot of names like we were doing that make it a little harder to be like, where do you draw the line? Where do I draw the line? Where do you draw the line, the listeners? Um and, and then so to conceive of that as this act of, of self-creation, like she said, with what I'm getting at here, I think is super fascinating. So I wanted to, um, I'll link this to you, uh, by the way, in, uh, well, I'm, we're pretty active on Twitter. So on Twitter, I'll put it there. And also in the, in the, if you're watching this on YouTube, in the link, um, a paper that she wrote that I, that I, well, there's two um, that I'll link to that I love. One was the true self, a psychological concept distinct from the self, which I'll, I'll read a, a tiny bit from. And then the one that I'm going to investigate a little more that she knows that I love quite a bit was just called the essential moral self. Uh, there's a part in this paper that is very short. It's a good way to start conceiving of what she means by the self versus the true self. So I'll just read from her paper. The self contains multitudes. It is a body and a mind, organs and thoughts, desires and intentions, whims and dispositions. Are all parts of the self equally self-like or are certain parts especially essential? So that question sort of is the central one of what would be a true self or what is a true self. This was again an article or an essay, excuse me, with research that was um, making an argument that the, the true self is moral is the moral self is essential. So what they did to try to sort of investigate some of this is really kind of cool and ingenious. This is from the other paper, The Essential Moral Self, which Nina Strominger wrote along with Sean Nichols. Um, this was in Cognition Magazine, I believe, Cognition Journal. Um, again, we'll link to this one. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's really, really marvelous. What they do is they envision a future, I think it's said in the year 2049, I'll just read it in a second, where basically there's a, a medical procedure where um, if you get your, if, the, if you have a brain injury, you can have brain transplants. And they, they name the, the hypothetical person who gets this uh, accident in their uh, first hypothetical, his name is Jim. And the simple question is, you'll see, so he, he gets an injury, and then this medical procedure, and in I think they had five different variations of, of the, the ending of it. In the ending of the five variations, um, s something has changed about Jim when he uh, comes out of the surgery. And the question they're asking people to ponder while after reading the hypothetical, which you're going to hear in just a second, is, is this person still Jim? So let, let me read it. I'll give you an idea. I think this is really, really cool. It's fascinating. So it's in their appendix. So I'm just looking down. So here it is. 
this is uh, again we could we could do this one as as a dilemma so this is really fun okay jim is an accountant living in chicago one day he sustains a severe head injury from a car accident his only chance for survival is participation in an advanced medical experiment called type 2 transplant procedure it is the year 2049 and scientists are able to grow different parts of the brain if they become damaged a stock of brain tissue is kept cryogenically frozen to be used as spare parts in the event of an emergency. In a type 2 transplant procedure, a team of doctors removes the damaged parts of the brain and carefully replaces it with the stock brain tissue. The damaged brain tissue is destroyed after it has been removed. After the operation, all the right neural connections between the old brain and the replacement brain tissue have been made. The doctors test all physiological responses and determine that the patient is alive and functioning. The doctors scan the brain of the transplant recipient and run some standard psychological tests. So here is when the, you know, the doctors are running these tests where there's a few different variations to the end of the, um, uh, this little story about Jim who in the year 2049 gets, uh, gets this type two procedure. Um, and then, so a after the, um, after hearing the variable of this surgery, um, the question that is asked, as, as I mentioned to you listening to it, you can do this one on yourself, is, uh, is the transplant recipient still Jim? And you sort of, uh, they ask them to basically, to what extent do you agree with that follow, with that statement? You can sort of rate it on a scale of one to 10, you know, 10 being it's still Jim and one being uh, this is not Jim anymore, whatever, whatever you agree with that statement. So, in the control group, obviously, they, they say they discover that the transplant recipient thinks and acts the same way as before the accident. So that's basically the, like, no change. You know, you did the tr brain transplant. Nothing at all changed about this person. Uh, is the transplant recipient still Jim? The only thing that's changed in that point, at that point is the physical brain tissue, I suppose. So maybe some people do feel a little bit like, eh, maybe it's not quite Jim. I don't know. I, you know, I would answer, of course, like still like, yep, that's still Jim. Um, here's another version called Ignacia. Ignacia? I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. They discover that the transplant recipient has lost the ability to recognize objects. He can see perfectly fine, but his ability to identify objects has disappeared. Aside from this, he thinks and acts the same way as before the accident. So... You know, that would be like you, you'd show him this and he doesn't recognize it as a glass or this is a microphone, but everything else is the same. Is this still Jim? Another variation was called uh, apathy. So they discover that the transplant recipient has lost all his desires. He no longer wants or desires anything. Aside from this, he thinks and acts the same way as before the accident. So another thing, is this still Jim? Uh, here's the fourth way, amnesia. They discover that the transplant recipient has lost his memories. He can no longer remember anything that happened before the accident. Aside from this, he thinks and acts the same way as before the accident. It's a little tougher, I think. If someone lost all their memories, they didn't know who their wife was or who their, you know, their own name, I presume, and needed to be retaught all of that, is this still Jim? That one starts getting fuzzier for me. And the last one, they discover that the transplant recipient has lost his moral conscience. He is no longer capable of judging right from wrong or being moved by the suffering of others. Aside from this, he thinks and acts the same way as before the accident. Um, so that one, which, you know, they just call morality. I don't know how you feel hearing that one to like imagine Jim, you know, I don't know, was a pretty fine moral dude or whatever before the accident. And after the, after the accident and after the surgery, he 
you know, can't judge right from wrong. He doesn't know that he, he has no animosity towards murders, I guess. He can't be moved by the suffering of others. Um, this is the one in the testing where people start to say things like, no, that's not Jim anymore, or wondering if he's lost his soul or some essential, this is the word, piece of his of Jim is not there anymore, and this is no longer Jim. Um, again, she's a, she's a psychologist, so she's more interested in, in finding these things out and i think it's a really interesting finding there are some variations of variations that are really interesting that they play with um such as something they call the silver bullet which is instead of an accident it's someone who like intentionally alters their brain if that with the same endings if that changes anything um versus a soul switch one which was a more fun kind of hollywood one um a reincarnation variation of it and then an interesting one just called the golden years which is sort of a well let's call it normal or something we're familiar with of someone who just sort of gets older and and starts to deteriorate in a way that maybe some of us tragically are used to and um you know when is this person no longer themselves uh but it's a fascinating paper and and the reason i think it's relevant to this one and sort of matches with what we were talking about with the continuum fallacy is um Jim, in their little example, again, they wrote it in a pretty extreme way, but imagine if before he went, you know, had this, this surgery or something, had a lot of, you know, strong moral convictions that he, he told you about. Um, even, even in this case, let's say he was like, he was a, our guest on Dilemma or at the table with us and thought, like, it is totally atrocious that anyone would ever listen to Louis C.K. again or Michael Jackson, and he, like, burns my, all of his Beatles stuff, but sorry about mentioning that one, by the way, or, like, his R. Kelly stuff and thinks anyone who would ever touch that stuff is just a pure, like, awful person. But then after this um, surgery and this brain transplant sort of hypothetical that he gets, Let's say he's totally reversed. He's suddenly like, no, this is all wonderful. Like, what are you talking about? I, you, you can do all of this. Um, that might, for me at least, feel like, no, this is, this is no longer Jim. Like, you've altered him and changed him in a fundamental way. Um, at least that's what that intuition does for, for me. Which, again, then I, I, I you know, again, so if, if this analogy works about, with, if you imagine this continuum... And where you draw a line, um, either a thick line or a thin line, or wh where you draw it is, is, a, is a kind of, again, a, to use her word, self-creation of maybe this essential self, this moral self that we're talking about, that turns out to be an incredibly important self to, <laughs> to ourselves, to use a bad word there, um, and to others, even in this kind of testing that it reveals. And so... Where we draw those lines, it, you know, you can almost imagine is drawing the outlines of this self in this in this self-creation kind of of um, analogy that I think is why I'm so fascinated in all of these topics. I've always been fascinating fascinated in these things since I was a kid, um, and through the course of getting deeper into it with the podcast and with meeting all these incredible people and, and diving into these things, um, maybe discovering where the edges of myself that I draw are a bit, which I think is, is incredibly useful, or deciding that like I don't 
love where I'm drawing them or I don't even have I don't know where I've drawn them. Uh, but the fact of learning how to draw them with some confidence or erase them with confidence and draw new ones or, or understand that the line is fuzzy, whatever that shape is in this weird analogy I'm using, it's a kind of self, um, I want to say discovery. Actually, that word is something that Nina in that paper points out. People often use this word discovery when they discover their true self. So I'm now doing it and, and sort of, I think, proving her point. But it feels like a kind of discovery, um, but then also a kind of creation because it's it's a discovery of maybe where you are, where your intuitions are, but also maybe discovering of where you want want to be, which is a more philosophical question. Um, so all of this being said, like I'm not sure how much this this um, points to or relates to um, the dilemma of like what music to listen to. But I know having that kind of framework in mind puts a kind of cool weight and gravity to it of the kind of art and music that you're comfortable consuming. It does seem to be this almost fun, although there's real consequences to it, act of discovery of like, oh, wow, like I can listen to R. Kelly. I, I don't actually like R. Kelly. I, don't, I, I could stop mentioning this, but I like Mel Gibson and I'm like, oh, I could do that. That's fine. But but I, I, I should admit that that, again, if I had that brain transplant and then suddenly said the opposite thing, that's a real change in the, the, the self-creation that I am creating. Um, and anyway, it's like, I, I think it's like a really cool, fascinating framework to, to hear about. You know, I'm sure we'll mention the um, continuum fallacy in other episodes because it's something, again, that Coleman uh, definitely sees a lot of and I see a lot of as well. So uh, you'll, you'll hear more of that. I think it's a great one to keep on board. And I think it's also a really interesting one to notice in to, to get slightly maybe political on it. We talked a lot on, the, on that episode about cancel culture and these names that we all know and, and this uh, maybe Twitter mob kind of mentality that we see happening. And maybe a lot of us are a bit queasy about the way we've seen some of that stuff happen. Uh, and keeping that framework of the self-creation and the self-drawing and, uh, and where you're drawing those lines, you know, it's, it seems to be that there's a bit of a maybe tendency lately to want to project this moral self to the world that is drawing those lines in some like extreme way that one grain of sand is a heap and one is too much. And, um, you know, I, again, I don't know, I don't have the answers to this, but I, but I think noticing that this fallacy is rampant, um, in the moral sphere is, and used, I think a bit nefariously and a bit disingenuous, disingenuously, um, is, is useful to, to have on board and hopefully maybe help have better discussions on these things, even with, uh, with your friends or, or people that you, you clash with actually something that I've been poking a, a bit about, like on, on Twitter and other social media is wondering, you know, I, I, again, I can't appreciate you more for listening to the show. It's incredible. I love just, we're getting a, a great response and a nice, a nice, uh, amount of listeners. And it's, and it's awesome. Really curious if you're, um, having these kind of discussions or putting them on the table and learning things about yourself or others. And anyway, like that's a huge sort of, um, desire for the show is to help prompt better discussions out in the real world and in your life. And I think maybe this notion of self-creation and understanding the continuum fallacy, uh, for me at least has been a way to, to broach difficult topics with a bit of, uh, of care and to try to try to 
erase the kind of binary thinking that we know gets people in trouble uh, right away because we have to admit we're on a continuum and we're all drawing lines somewhere, even something. Actually, this is a good transition because next week's episode is all about food. And I wanted to bring up eating meat or not eating meat. We all, well, maybe not all of us, but most of us draw the line somewhere of I'm actually vegan and I'll talk about uh, reasons for it and and why I've I've gone into it in the next episode. Um, But, you know, I, uh, I kill, I kill some bugs sometimes. And so even on the continuum of the spectrum of, of, you know, the consciousness of animals, which again, we're actually, well, actually we're getting into a bit in episode six. Um, there's a continuum there, even if something as drastic and profound as sort of (laughs) the potential death of a conscious creature, most of us live on a continuum there and, and you could really start, you know, grabbing the 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 torches and going on a march if there's just a, one transgression or you notice one transgression on on the the line somewhere uh, but we should all take take on board and notice the continuum fallacy on on tons of topics is being very much exploited and it's it's a good it's a good um, thing to have have on board again for for political discussions for moral discussions for your personal discussions and for your own personal um, exploration I think it's fantastic so episode five coming up it is about food it uh, particularly is about GMO warning labels gem- genetically modified organisms and warning labels on foods or even the like GMO free project labels if you've seen some of those basically. The guest is Robin Hansen, who is incredible. If you know Robin Hansen, you know why I'm excited about having him on the show. He wrote the book Elephant in the Brain recently, which is phenomenal. Um, if you want to cram it in this week, I can't recommend it highly enough. He's a, uh, a behavioral econ- economist. He's done a ton of different work. Uh, the elephant in the brain is a metaphor for uh, the elephant in the room being this big thing that everyone knows is there, but we're not going to talk about it. And in his sort of analogy for that is kind of the evolved desire in our brains of being status, sex, seeking animals is this like elephant in the brain that we're just not going to look at and we don't feel comfortable looking at but often is the best explanation for why we do tons of things it can be a bit of a depressing read but also pretty liberating as well anyway the first half of that book lays out the elephant and the second half of that book is um examples of different topics where you can sort of maybe explain the situation of our world a little better by looking at the elephant. Um, but he doesn't in that book talk about food. So we end up basically kind of in a deep discussion about what would it have been like to write a chapter about food in the book, the elephant in the brain. Um, it's phenomenally interesting. Moral discussions about food are usually crazy and get everyone riled up. So hopefully, um, you know, (laughs) the intention of the show isn't to like really upset anyone, but I bet something will be said in that show that will upset you. Discussions about nutrition and food, I think are like almost even more difficult than politics and religion. It's 
crazy. And we talk even a little bit about why that might be the case with food. Um, so it's a super fun one. And, you know, we also do, of course, talk about GMOs and, and sort of some sort of basic information on them. Um, but it's Robin Hansen. He's tremendously good. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Also, we say this in the show, but I'll say it now. Follow him on Twitter. He's, a, he's an amazing Twitter user. He posts like these insane polls all day that are like just out of this world. I can't even just, just go look at his Twitter. I'm sure you'll find him, Robin Hansen. Um, and his uh, website called Overcoming Bias, which is phenomenal. So that's your homework for next week. And um, yeah, that, that's, that's it. And then also, I will also remind you, I did mention it in the last, last week's episode, that a couple of the dilemmas from season one, including last week's episode, come from the National High School Ethics Bowl. It's great. Check it out. I think I'll also put a link here, whatever people do on YouTube. Is that where it happens? And um, uh, check them out. If, if you're listening to this on one of the podcast apps, just like Google National High School Ethics Bull. It's for high schoolers who, uh, it's a, it's, I, I don't want to call it a debate competition. It's a bit of a debate competition, but it's more of a scored philosophical discussion with an opponent. And it's great because you can change your mind in the middle of the discussion and, and win in the format of it. I've been volunteering for it for a bunch of years. It's a ton of fun. If uh, you know a high schooler, if you have a sibling who's a high schooler, if you're not a high schooler but want to get involved, there's different ways to get involved. I recommend everyone do it. And if not, just go to their website and like read through the archives and go just have a, like a really fun time reading a bunch of different uh, situations and, and challenging yourself of what of uh, what you think. So uh, there you go. Episode five coming up. Thank you all so 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 much. <laughs>